You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Miriam began um, our weekend with a rather wonderful observation uh, on the Footlights group that they were geniuses, but they were also arseholes. Um, that might be something that in reverse we'd accept for our politicians, because while many of us can agree that they, many of them are arseholes, not many of them are geniuses. And underlying a lot of the discussions we've had this weekend has been a latent political question. We talked about business and shareholders against society in the first session, but what role does politics have? We talked about nudging and nannying this morning. We talked about community in the big society. But we haven't really fully taken on politics yet, and so that's what we're going to do now in this session I'll introduce our speakers, but as their gift to you, they have promised to be brief and only to speak for three minutes so that we have a little bit more chance to talk. I'll give very brief introductions in the order in which they're speaking. Speaking first, Peter Kellner, master pollster, chairman of YouGov. Speaking next, Ollie Grender, in an age of Lib Dem plummeting popularity, the one it's still okay to like. To my right and speaking third, Douglas Alexander, Shadow Foreign Secretary, and a man who said his impressive new title could only be improved if it didn't have the word shadow in front of it. And on my far right, and figuratively on the right of the panel, uh, former blogger, former Conservative candidate, and current publisher, Ian Dale. Peter, your three minutes. Um, when I saw us first talk about community and the values, I think these are two political bollocks words. They mean almost anything to anybody. I'm with Humpty Dumpty. The question is, which is to be master? That is all. When Tony Blair was a new uh, Labour leader, 1994, he sent to me, as various people, an article he wrote uh, espousing the politics of community. And I sent back a message saying, uh, this was full of, of, of warm, nice-sounding guff. I think he should, thought he should be more gritty, more hard-edged, more rigorous. Sadly, he ignored my advice. Um, <laughs> Had he accepted it, he might have won a narrow majority in 1997. Um, <laughs> where I failed with him, let me see if I can succeed with you. I think, I think this is the wrong title. It should be community or values, because I interpret the two words. They are in tension with each other. The essence of a community is they define a group of insiders and outsiders. To be part of a community is to have special privileges, special um, respect or whatever, not granted to the outsiders. Um, the most community-based political party in Britain is the BNP. It has a very, very clear sense. Its politics is about a particular sense of what a community is, followed closely by Sinn Féin and DUP. I don't like uh, that kind of tribal approach, just as though I'm a, an Arsenal fan in its slight morning that we could only manage a draw with Sunderland this afternoon, I, I dislike it when I go to the Emirates to see the visceral hatred of Spurs, as if there's somehow something morally superior to being an Arsenal man and being a Spurs fan. This is... This is <laughs> you make my point. Um, I, I, I wonder when Flanders and Swan did that called the Song of Patri Patriotic Fervour, the English, the English, the English are best, I wouldn't give tuppence for all of the rest, I wonder how many of the people who went to see them and applauded realised this was a, a song of subversive irony. Um, I believe in values, not uh, in community. The politics I want is the politics of tolerance, uh, of compassion, of equality, of mutual respect, of diversity. These are all these things which leap over community barriers. Um, so what I believe in, it's what... Blanche Dubois said at the end of A Streetcar Named Desire, I believe in politics which embraces uh, the kindness of strangers, with the obvious exception of Millwall supporters and Liberal Democrats. <laughs> Excellent. As a, Tottenham, yeah. uh, as a Tottenham fan, Peter and I will have a hug later. <laughs> Ollie, your three minutes. Okay. Uh, is anyone else a signed-up member of the Liberal Democrats? And did you get the please leave in your pack when you first arrived? Because I've got three of them. Is there a reason for that? Anyway, um, uh, I've, I started out um, in the uh, Liberals in the early 80s because I believe very much in community politics, which has now kind of morphed into localism um, and is about devolving power as much as possible to individuals. And as a wide-eyed teenager... 
uh, I went out campaigning and knocked on 200 doors in this council estate, which was going to be decanted, moved out so that it was rebuilt. Um, and I thought, well, it's a pretty nice estate, actually, nice gardens, nice space. I'm sure they don't want to be decanted, knocked on every door. And everybody there said, come in, come and take a look at how bad it is, how few repairs we've had done. With the exception of one person, Barry. Um, and Barry had everything repaired in his house. And I said, are you related to anybody in the council? Do you have any friends on the council? He said, no. I go down to the repair office and I say, I will gob in the repair book until you repair in my house. And sure enough, he had all the repairs and nobody else. And I thought that was a lovely, affected bit of community. I signed him up. He was the local activist that represented all those people in that decanting process. It went very well. So community politics, localism, I'm very much in favour of that. Um, and then um, I think on this society, I take issue with Peter. I think that community does mean something instead of big society. I think where some research has been done, which I've put on the hashtag for this conference for you um, by Brand Democracy, um, uh, there's, there's a suggestion there that people, whilst they do not understand a definition of society, they very much do understand community. And, you know, kind of when you do research about are you involved in the community, actually 72% say <coughs> they are. Once they think about it, it may be the school, it may be helping out the local hospital, but certainly people are involved. Um, and so, you know, kind of that's a good thing, and I think that community should be encouraged. And I think community is a better way of explaining. So I disagree with the Bishop of Liverpool. Uh, I defy him to um, beat the research that I'm going to put up on the <laughs> internet for you. Anyway, so my final thought about how you connect to communities, and in particular how politicians do, and by the way, I think that politicians are much better at it than they're given credit for, some of them, uh, like Douglas here, um, and I think that it is about making sure that you knock on doors, making sure that you sweat, making sure that you are worried that you are going to lose your seat. And in order to achieve that, I think you need a change in the voting system so that there isn't a, isn't a safety and knowledge. Well, put it this way. <laughs> Stuart Bell, who does not support changing the voting system, hasn't held a surgery in 14 years. I leave that thought with you. And then a final thought, which is contrary to some of the stuff this morning, I would just like to say uh, I do um, know lots of my neighbours. I do want to know more of my neighbours. Uh, so I will be holding a street party for the royal wedding. Uh, I would encourage you all to do the same as a little community moment. Very good. <laughs> Douglas, Ollie says you're one of the good ones, so... Um, I agree with Oli. Um, <laughs> let me start by saying I don't think it's coincidental that in the video that we've just seen we saw a bishop and a rabbi because I think for many people they perceive politics like religion as being about belief. And I would respectfully suggest to you today that it is not just about belief but it's also about belonging. For me politics has always been about certainly serving a cause but also serving a community. The community that I serve is the community I grew up in that I now have the great privilege of representing at Westminster. And I think at its best, representative democracy gives integrity to the political relationship. Because most Fridays and Saturdays, I'm not in Port Mary and I am knocking on doors or holding advice surgeries in the local supermarket in the town. And when constituents, as they do every week, jab their finger in my chest and say, what have you done for us this week, Douglas? It's a weekly reminder that I'm not in politics for myself, but actually for them. And that's why, incidentally, I do think the constituency link matters. So let me just make two points in relation to the community that I know best, reflecting the conversations that we've had in the title of the session. The first is this. The community I represent is a town that has been defined in turn by industrialisation and deindustrialisation. Paisley in the 19th century was defined by the cotton mills, in the 20th century by the car industry, and both of those industries have gone. But they went 40 years ago. And actually, for the last 40 years, the experience has been trying to find an identity that meant the town could live on its hopes and its future rather than on its memories and the past. And 
if I'm honest, when I listened to the session this morning, I thought it was important to introduce a corrective to our discussions, which is the effect of the global financial crisis and the cuts that are going to affect the community I represent and the unemployment people are anticipating in my community has not been to open up a whole new conversation about non-material values, but to lead to a very real pessimism and fear about material well-being. Most of the people I represent are absolutely terrified at the prospect of losing their jobs, at losing services on which they rely, and I think it would be a missed opportunity if we were to presume in a mechanistic way that somehow the advent of the global financial crisis has changed politics to an inevitably stronger focus on non-material values. That's my first point. The second point, however, is if I look back on the last decade or so when Labour, my party, was in power, on one level the town was transformed because the hopelessness of mass unemployment that had been the hallmark of the town in the 80s, which obliged me to join the Labour Party, did give way to a period where actually the only people unemployed in the town were people who were... Uh, drug dependent, had literacy issues, numeracy issues, numeracy issues, or had barriers to work. But actually, most people who wanted and sought a job were able to get a job. That was transformative. But actually, I feel in retrospect that we had an over-reliance on the provision of work as the means to heal the brokenness of the community I represent. And actually, it has given me a humility as a politician that we need those delicate and fragile but vital intermediate institutions to be both the generators and amplifiers of non-material values if we are going to have a stronger community in the future. Now, 20 or 30 years ago in Paisley, that might have been churches, it might have been the trade union movement. Those are not necessarily the institutions that will <coughs> define that kindness to strangers that was spoken about previously. But I do think that if we are going to have strong and vibrant communities with a strong set of values, we both need to have concern for people's material well-being, but also have respect for those institutions in which we learn a language of morality and which actually help shape the values of a strong and healthy community in the future. All right. <laughs> From Paisley to West Ham, Ian. West Ham 3, Stoke Nil, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, um, community is a word I think that 20 years ago most Conservatives viewed as deeply subversive. Uh, do you remember Steve Wright when he had a Radio 1 show? He used to have a character on his show called Damien the Social Worker and sort of on the behalf of the community. And it was always seen as a very sort of left-wing word, I think, by many Conservatives. But the big society, I think, is, it could be called the big community. So I think it, it, it's a word that has got in increasing resonance throughout the political spectrum. I was slightly surprised to hear Peter say that he was against community, sort of with my background of thinking, well, it was a word that originally was defined from the left, but I think it's now been embraced by everybody. I think everybody in this room will belong to one sort of community or another. We all belong to a community where we live. Um, I belong to an online community. Probably many of you belong to an online community where you have shared values. Um, some of us belong to the Westminster Village community. And that, I think, is sort of almost at the essence of this uh, session today, because I think Susie Orbach put it probably best. Well, we've, we've, got, we've had the end of deference in this country. Um, people no longer believe that their political leaders know best. They question more than they used to. They don't obey their political leaders. And there's been a fracture between the relationship between politicians of all parties and the electorate, because... Their values, I think, have been slightly pulled apart, or if they haven't, the, uh, the political community has failed to explain to the rest of the community what their values are. Um, so in order to create a community, you've, you've got to demonstrate that you do have shared values. And of course, with all the expenses scandals, with the fact that people see all three political parties maybe not now, but certainly at the election, they saw all three political parties as more or less the same. They saw all of the political leaders having much the same background. University, special advisor, MP, minister. You look at the leaders of all three political parties. Sorry, Dougie. They're, they're all, they all have very similar backgrounds. They're not people like us. That's what the electorate is often thinking. And in a community, you do belong to a group of people like us. So the challenge, I think, for politicians over the next decade, and it isn't a short-term thing, it is going to take a decade or more to um, revive, is, is for politicians to show the electorate that they share 
most of the values that the electorate has. And it is partly by doorstep pavement politics. And of course, this is what the Westminster... Am I, am I going over time? You've got One about minute. But this is what the Westminster lobby never really understands. They're so obsessed by who's up, who's down, they don't actually see what not only MPs but candidates do. I mean, I've, I haven't been an MP, I've been a candidate. And I had to enmesh myself in my local community, take up causes, in fact, copy the Liberal Democrat pavement politics approach. And when you go and knock on a door of, a, of an Alzheimer's home that is about to be shut and you realise that these people look on you as the person that's going to save it for their community, then you realise why it is that you went into politics in the first place. But to get that over to 80,000 people in a local constituency is not an easy thing to do, and that's a really big challenge for people in this day and age. Thank you, Ian. Let's have a final round of applause. Okay, then. Uh, thanks to the spectacular and welcome brevity of our speakers, we have uh, more than half an hour for a discussion one way we might put our sort of simple way of trying to put our arms around what we're trying to talk about here is the question, is politics working? Is it broken? Themes around this conference, we've had Mr. Taleb saying politics is a top-down system that can't solve our problems. We had the boss of Edelman saying politics has little to do with telling business how to act. We had Douglas there talking about the you know, real people worried about their livelihoods, not thinking about airy-fairy community values. Or, or can we be more optimistic about what politics has to offer? Let's open it up. The usual rules apply, which is that if you do want to make a statement, try and sort of keep it tolerably brief um, or ask a, ask a question. First one over there. We'll take in groups of uh, you know, two or three if we can. Morris Mendoza. I was uh, just struck with... I enjoyed um, what Douglas Alexander was saying and was struck that uh, for some reason politicians uh, like you cannot uh, come across that way on TV um, when being interviewed. And I'm just wondering what the media responsibility is in terms of allowing politicians to communicate effectively uh, to us through that kind of medium. Well, but uh, Douglas, why don't you answer that and then we'll take um, as Rachel um, with her hand Politicians up. rely on the media and politicians complaining about the media remind me of sailors who complain about the sea. But... Um, with that caveat, I have a lot of sympathy with your point of view. Of course, as an individual communicator, I could always be better, and it's a genuine skill to be able to communicate on television. But I do think that there is now a great fear amongst politicians that they're always one phrase away from suicide. And that is exacerbated by a style of interviewing that has taken hold. Come on, Douglas, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, would call the, which I would call the gotcha style of interviewing, in which the, the centre of power in the interview has shifted from the politician to the journalist. I would argue 20, 30 years ago, the kind of pre-Paxman, pre-Humphreys generation, that actually there was often very rigorous questioning of politicians, heavy scrutiny, but the working assumption was not that every politician who spoke was at best lying and deceitful and at worst downright corrupt. And actually, the working assumption of the interviewer has now changed to seeing themselves on a white charger, their only job being to expose the malfeasance and dishonesty of the politician. And that actually gets in the way of politicians sometimes being interesting. Because the cumulative effect of doing enough of those interviews is that the defences come up. It incidentally makes for very boring television or radio. It leads for frustration on the part of the politicians because your currency is communication and you're boring the audience. <laughs> and it leads to an exacerbated position. I mean, my sense is the press are now in a perpetual um, determination to sustain the public in a state of self-righteous indignation. And that gets in the way of serious discourse and discussion. Ian and Ollie wanted to come in briefly on this and then we'll go back. I agree with every word that Douglas said, and I present a three-hour phone-in show every night on LBC and have to interview quite a lot of politicians. And you can tell, that if, if, it's an if it's a politician that I haven't ever met before, particularly if it's a Labour politician, they're expecting me just to have a go at them. And it's very, it's remarkable. Afterwards, if I sort of see them a couple of weeks later, they say, but you let me speak. <laughs> and they're absolutely astonished by it. And I just find, if you let people speak, they might actually say something that's interesting. You never know. But there's another thing, it, which is a curse nowadays in interviews, and that's the two-minute Today programme interview. 
where, I mean, think of the number of times you hear somebody say, sorry, that's all we've got time for at the end of an interview, just when it's, get, when it's getting going. And that means that when Douglas goes on the Today programme, rather like today, he's going to make two points. He knows what they are before he's asked a question, and he'll make the points, whatever question he's asked. Now, what on earth does the audience get out of that interview? Absolutely nothing. Ollie. Yeah, and I, I just think that um, also there's this, this business about um, the journalists who get the accolades, who get the scalps. So, you know, there's almost a kind of, you know, especially in the kind of Westminster village, uh, you notice that on Twitter, congratulations to so-and-so when somebody has resigned as a result of the sting that you've done. Um, so the accolade has become that. And that's been a culture since Watergate, in a way. Um, and it's about the kind of the celebrity, celebration of celebrity of a journalist, um, rather than uh, them seeing themselves as, you know, the kind of reporter of facts or whatever. Uh, so, um, anyway, so that's just kind of Very good. an addition to that. Let's, um, let, we do have a session on the media, um, so let's not make this all about the, the press, said he, feeling victimised. We've got one, <laughs> one, one there and then uh, another further on. So, go. Phillips from Edelman. Um, it's a question about representative democracy, uh, which Douglas um, referred to. Um, if politics is broken, one of the reasons it's broken is because the voting system we have in this country is broken. We now had or have the chance to change the voting system and we have a choice between a system that is bad and a system that is not much better. So I'd welcome the panel's views on whether proper and comprehensive voting reform could have actually fixed broken politics. Let's have a couple more. I, I think I saw Rachel's hand go up. Was that right? Or maybe... Does this work? I don't know if this oh, one works. Okay. And um, Ju Julia wanted to make a point. I hope it doesn't repeat any Morris's question, but I, in the pre-recorded contributions, I think it was Susie Orbach who said you could count on two hands the number, number of um, politicians who were in any sense individuals or had any individuality. I think Una said this morning, I wasn't there because I was loyally supporting Ivo's panel, which was on something else, but she said that it would take... <laughs> 200 years for uh, us to reach parity in the House of Commons on female representation. So do we think that perhaps we are looking at the wrong target when we look at diversity and gender equality in public life? And maybe we should be looking much more towards selecting individuals and the parties should be screening out dullards. Just remember the Rose Garden moment. We had two identical men um, in the Rose Garden in the civil partnership, and that seemed to symbolise, in a sense, a, a lack of individuality that had perhaps crept into politics. If only we could think of some iconoclastic individual politicians <laughs> in British public life. Um, Julia. <laughs> Just a... With the benefit of hindsight, of course, we can all say that it was shocking and terrible to entertain the Libyan government. And I wonder whether, with the benefit of hindsight, perhaps some 20 years down the line, we will say that it's absolutely mad the way we select politicians, the way they represent constituencies that often they have absolutely no connection with, that it's all a kind of cooked-up, slightly you know, is the right word, gerrymandered operation, favours that you've done for some, someone in your party and you get selected. That seems to me the absolute beginning of the rot, that the way politicians are selected <coughs> is completely undemocratic and is nothing to do with community. Well, it, those are three questions that actually are about the same thing, thankfully. So it's how, how do we select our politicians? And, and let's, um, let's start with Peter, because he didn't come in on the um, last one. I think it's bollocks to say that our electoral system is the cause of our political problems. I personally favour the alternative votes. Uh, I mean, I'm one of the very few people who are going to vote yes, wanting that system, not as a stepping stone um, to something else, because I think, I, think a, I think it is a better way of choosing individuals to do it so that somebody at some point gets more than half the local voters. But I, I don't believe that our present political problems are the, are, are the result of first-past-the-post, nor do I think AV will, in that sense, make a huge difference. And as for something more proportional, um, I mean, Julia's point about the way we select politicians, we've just had an election in Ireland with a system that the Liberal Democrats, the electoral reform movement, have long wanted. That is the most ghastly, uh, corrupt, um, anti-representative democracy system because what you get is a squalid little competition amongst local communities within Irish multi-member seats. Irish politics is is up its own arse in the way it's um, the pork barrel 
quality of local politics is the product of the single transferable vote, which would be, an, I think, is an utter disaster there and would be a much greater uh, disaster here. If you're going to have a proportional system, have, have the Scottish or, 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 or German system, but I prefer a majoritarian system for the reasons that Douglas uh, gives, and I think the constituency link uh, is important. And on the point, Rachel's point um, about, you know, are we up, um, up the wrong tree on, on uh, race and gender and politics? I would turn it round. Um, I was in favour of all women's shortlists, not because I think it there, not because I like the idea in principle, but because I took the view that a system in which, whatever it was then, 95% of our MPs were men, was actually not picking the best people. A system that picked the best people would have far more women in it, and, and therefore. You know, the idea that what you got was a perfect system until, as were well, the Harridans of the Labour Party said, no, we're going to rig it for women, you know, I think that is a, a false premise. I, you know, I've, I've lost count of the number of discussions I had with male politicians over the years saying, you know, you shouldn't interfere, it's the best person for the job. But if the aggregate consequence of, quote, the best person for the job is plainly unrepresentative, there is something broken about that. And I saw short, all women shortlists as, as a, a way of speeding up a process that would otherwise have taken decades. In one of the great things that happened um, was it yesterday or the day before, a woman was appointed permanent secretary, and I think the Department of Environment, and it brought the number of women permanent secretaries to 50% of all permanent secretaries. Okay. Great moment. And, and, but that is because over the last 20 years or so, the civil service has gone out of its way to repair the male bias it used to have. Male biases do not happen by accident, and you have to correct them deliberately. Very good. Um, Ian, <laughs> you, this, the, the issue of interesting people trying to get into politics is one that you've obviously sort of had some experience with. Yeah, and if you want a generation of very dull politicians, um, go ahead and... It was. <laughs> um, if you want a generation of dull politicians, go ahead and support AV, because AV is all about everybody's second choice. And um, one of the reasons I'm sitting here as a uh, publisher and broadcaster rather than MP is because the Conservative Party has AV in its candidate selection. And if you're a Marmite candidate, where you have a group of people who love you and a group of people who hate you, but you're nobody's second choice. You will never get selected under AV. Now, whether you get elected, I, I, I mean, I don't know. But, I mean, that's, I think, quite an important thing to bear in mind. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't die, AV, I really actually can't get that excited about. If we have it, well, it's going to have a bit of an impact, but not a huge amount. There is no such thing as a perfect electoral system. But to think that it's the electoral system is the re main reason that politics is broken. The electorate knows why politics is broken. But I bet you never had a single person on the doorstep saying, oh, I think we should have AV at the last election. I bet you didn't when you were campaigning. It's not something that people actually care about. They want to see the expenses system fixed. But we've got to encourage individuals, people who are a little bit different from the norm, not just through gender or sexuality or race, but just different and can lead. And we do have a, a, a political generation that, that look the same. And the reason we have that is because the parties want it. They want to have people in Parliament who they can control. That's why we have so many more younger MPs now, because they're more interested in climbing what Disraeli called the greasy pole and getting to be a minister and, and actually suppressing that, their own for, beliefs. Now, for, there, there are lots of exceptions to that. Um, former, I mean, former minister and special advisor Douglas Alexander is shaking his head at this. I was never a special advisor, actually. Um, Speechwriter. Of course politics is broken, and you can account for that loss of trust in part because of Iraq, in part because of expenses, but if we're honest, the disconnect between the public and politicians started a long time before both of those events, seismic though they were in terms of, of further tearing apart the fabric of trust. But I don't think the electoral system alone is the answer to it. I think if we're honest, it is partly because we ask our politicians to stand where most of us would choose not to stand, dealing often in circumstances of moral hazard with very difficult questions. Secondly, I personally don't buy the argument that says the true measure of an effective politician is their quality of celebrity. 
And I think part of the reason there is such frustration and disappointment with politicians is quite of a lot of us who either are politicians or aspire to be politicians are pretty hopeless celebrities. But, you know, the kind of people who want to be celebrities tend not to be the people who want to do a three-hour surgery sitting in a community supermarket on a Saturday afternoon. And I think that the, the, the breaking down of the barrier between show business and public life, I think, has set up a whole set of misconceptions in people's minds as to what we actually aspire to in terms of our politicians. And in that sense, I do think people want politicians of integrity. They do want people who are rooted in and representative of a community. But those are not necessarily the same attributes that make you a real character in the Westminster village. Very good. They can be. And Charles Kennedy is a good example. Well, I mean, people like Charles Kennedy because they saw him as a gritty uh, individual who they thought could stand up for. He's a very good constituency MP, I, I understand. Um, but he's also a celebrity. Briefly from Ollie, and then we'll go back to the floor. I think if, if, the, if there's a kind of external pressure, and I've been the backroom person you know, for 25 years in politics, so I've mostly watched politicians from behind the scenes, I'm not very much a kind of front-line person. Um, and the reason for that is because what I see people, when they stand for parliament, go through in terms of scrutiny, in terms of raising their kids, uh, in terms of being despised uh, and working to 1am, uh, you know, kind of uh, many nights of the week, uh, just why on earth would I do that and raise a child? You know, why would I do it to myself or to my husband or, you know, to my son. And, um, and I think there needs to be something, and that particularly applies to women, I think, uh, because women are scrutinised and criticised for looks a lot more. Um, and so, yes, you can have the kind of... You can have the system, um, and, I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Yes, the change in the voting system. But the kind of the... The, the, you know, the reason that when my closest friends decide they're going to stand for Parliament, I spend a good amount of time trying to dissuade them from doing it <laughs> is because I care about them a lot. And there are some very talented people in there, including in the Cabinet right now, who I spent a lot of time trying to, trying to dissuade from joining in uh, and becoming an MP because I care about them very, very much. I will happily work endlessly for them behind the scenes uh, and, and to help them out and support them once they make this stupid initial error, <laughs> in my view, um, because I believe that good people should be involved in politics. But to get good people involved in politics, I think something has to change about an attitude to people in politics. Great. And I think that Douglas is absolutely right. I mean, if you go round Brighton Pavilion, take a look at all those punch cartoons, which are 150 years old, uh, people in politics are under similar levels of attack. Now. I'm going to go to this, this side of the room. I'm going to invite people to be really quite brief because we've only got 15 minutes, and I'd like to get two rounds. And I saw Peter York at the back and Derek, and then there's a, a lady there who... Um, maybe we'll start with, with you here. Brigitte Trafford, my question is, do the panel think that our politicians might be able to better serve the community if they were forced to have come from a different background, i.e. not be a professional politician before they actually become <coughs> MPs? Okay, that's a provocative thought. And then there's two at the back. I might take one more over here as well, just to... Uh, Derek Wyatt, uh, I was a Labour MP for 13 years. Um, it, we've talked a little bit about AV and some, but we're tinkering at the edges. The Constitution of the United Kingdom doesn't work. And it doesn't work both at local council level and county council level. It doesn't work at the House of Commons and the House of Lords relationship. MEPs, once they're voted on, I bet you couldn't name your MEPs, but they go off to Europe. They don't come actually to your own par parliament to actually report on what they do in Brussels. There's, a, there's a, such a profound disconnect that until the constitution is completely rewritten, which would never happen in our time, never ever happen. We're just, all the time, as I said this morning, we're putting another layer on another layer on another layer without fundamentally asking the question, what will work best for our people, not what will work best for our parties. Very good. Thank you for these brief points, Peter. Um, I blame the public, and I wonder if any of the panel care to blame the public. Obviously, no serving politician could possibly blame the public. It's like saying it's not good to have vegetables. But nonetheless, um, the underlying reality, why are people 
do people constantly say that that politics is a you know is a blown game that they can't subscribe to it that they can't be involved in not because every last man jack of them has read peter oborn and knows about the backgrounds of politicians of course they don't and it's not even because they've all read the telegraph though quite a lot of them heard the about the excesses of expenses. It's because their lives and their concerns have changed, their natural commitments, their ideas of community, which is one of the falsest words that ever was. Every time you hear the word community, you have to interrogate it and ask, Mm -hmm. is that a real community or did somebody invent it two minutes ago? Do we blame the public? Because all this mechanism of politics is policy won't talk. The public are to blame. Very good. Now, I th- did I see? Okay, one hand down here, and we'll take one, one more, and try and wrap all of wrap all of this up. We often talk uh, about see, see who you are, just so. Sorry, everyone. Martin Davidson. Um, we often talk about the, the politician, um, but um, it seems to me one of the problems is the politicians are constantly over-promising and under-delivering, um, and the media constantly demands that st- something must must be done, where actually not very much can be done. Um, uh, somebody, Peter was just talking about uh, our vegetables. We're constantly being uh, uh, tasked to eat more vegetables. I saw the other day not to smoke in a car. It's enough for me want to actually start smoking and find a car to smoke in. Um, and uh, whether or not politicians would be more trusted if they actually focused on the things they could actually affect rather than trying to talk about things which they simply can't affect. Okay. So we, well, that, I, let's go back to the panel. We have... Who's at fault here? Politicians who promise too much or the public who expects too much? Um, and Douglas, you wanted to come in on the public point in particular. Yeah, I think this is a historic discussion. I think I agree with Peter York. This is extra- <laughs> extraordinary. Um, listen, of course politicians at their best are idealists because we want to bridge that gap between what the world is and what the world can be. And if you get too far ahead of the public, you become a preacher. And if you stay exactly where the public are, you simply employ employ YouGov to do your focus groups. We need to constantly be in tension with where the public actually are. But I'm disturbed by this conversation to the extent that politics should not be a spectator sport. It's not the canvas on which you draw interesting cartoons of celebrity politicians or dullard politicians. It should be a participation sport. It's certainly a contact sport. But it's a participation sport. When somebody says to me, why should I join the Labour Party? I say, because I can't change Paisley on my own. I need your help to do it. And ultimately, until we get to an attitude whereby people see politics as being an authentic expression of their ideals, certainly difficult, certainly complicated, but being about their shared engagement in finding shared solutions to shared problems we are going to see perpetual disappointment rather than a politics based on a sense of empowerment and a sense of hope. And that's certainly the kind of politics that brought me into party politics 20 years ago and that keeps me here despite everything that Ollie says being true about being a serving politician. Frankly, I was a lawyer. There are much easier ways to make a living and to earn a lot of money than being a politician. Peter. But actually, in the face of that coruscating cynicism, politicians are the last people to challenge it. The people who need to challenge it are not on the panel. They're actually in the audience. Um, Peter, pollsters like you, you're the problem here. Okay, well, as I've never stood for Parliament or worked for a political party, uh, and I meant to represent the voice of the people who are causing all the problems, the public, um, let me challenge the assumptions underneath the last two rounds of question, uh, i.e. that politics is broken. Uh, In the 1860s, John Bright, radical Victorian MP, I gave a speech in the Times report, started by saying, the following is the speech delivered by John Bright last night in Birmingham Town Hall on his annual visits to his constituency. (laughs) Uh, In 1920, Lloyd George was selling honours. In the 1930s and 40s, Winston Churchill was engaged in financial transactions which, had they been happening today, would have landed him in prison. In the 60s and early 70s, we had councillors and one permanent secretary who went to jail for corruption. I would like to put the scandalous proposition that <laughs> politics today is more in touch, more honest, more efficient, and less corrupt than it's been at any time in Britain's history. Does that mean it's perfect? Obviously not. But laws get passed, uh, debates get held, points get made and listened to in, those, uh, in the legislative process, services get delivered, um, you know, welfare payments get made. And on the whole... 
This happens with reasonable efficiency, without favoritism, without corruption. And I would say, compared with any point in our history, or with almost any other country in the world, we should actually be rather proud of what our politics achieves. So it's not perfect, but let us not say, because of media cynicism and because of the polling figures I produce, that everything is terrible. It ain't. This is no thanks to you, Ollie, if you're persuading everyone not to go in. (laughs) (laughs) I fail every time. Um, With one massive exception, which is the chamber and the way that it conducts its business. Because we all work in businesses and organisations out there that are that are are structured by rules and standards and the way that we behave towards people. And you sit in meeting rooms and you exchange opinions and you may exchange quite robust opinions, but what you do not do is have a schoolboy debating my dad's bigger than your dad style. Um, And and I really feel this very, very strongly, uh, you know, that if an MP with a disability, if women have jeering at them, which is extraordinarily sexist, and if you were in any other organisation, you know, I've employed a lot of people, uh, if, you, if you were in an organisation and you saw that way that people speak to each other in the chamber, you would call them in and you would sack them on the spot. Um, um, you know, it's just an inappropriate thing to do, and I think that it sets a tone... And if I had one, you know, kind of slight moment of sadness, of course there are various others, um, ask me about it in the bar, but, you know, kind of one thing that I really wished that David Cameron had done because he had the ability to do this was just set the tone and change it completely from day one. And, and yes, of course, there's lots of bear baiting, and yes, of course, there's lots of jeering, but I think just change it, change it now, because... If you did find an ordinary person, like I think about, I don't know, Shirley, my babysitter. If I could persuade Shirley, my babysitter, who is one of the most caring, bright people I know, to go into politics, she would be destroyed the minute she stood up in the chamber. And that, I think, is the problem, which is that you need people who are not necessarily reflected of society, but who can absolutely win that battle in a very old-fashioned scenario. Ian, briefly. Um, Somebody mentioned the point about forcing politicians to have real jobs before they go into Parliament. You you can't force that. But we are the only country (coughs) that I know of where once you get to the age of 45, 48, if you're not in Parliament, you might as well give up because you're hardly like to be selected. I'm 48. I'm not going to try again because I don't believe in flogging a dead horse. Selection committees generally, there are always exceptions, do not pick people once they're over 50. Yet if you're in America, if you're in Germany, if you're in France... If you're in your 50s and you had a fairly successful career doing something, you might then think of public service. In this country, you'd be mad to do so, partly because you probably wouldn't stand a chance of getting selected, but also the scrutiny that you then come under with your whole life, people just think, well, why would I do that? Um, Second of all, of, of course politicians are to blame as well as the public for what's going on, because if you're a politician and people approach you to save their local post office... What are you going to do? Refuse to support their campaign, even if you think, actually, there's a viable reason for the post office to be shut? Of course you're not. You get the ridiculous spectacle of Nick Clegg and his colleagues making these pledges on tuition fees that they know they can't keep. They do it for electoral popularity. You've got these Conservative MPs in the high-speed railing constituencies. Even if they think the thing's um, a good idea, they can't say so because they know it will be electoral suicide. It's actually called leadership. But, of course, you pay the price for leadership if you, if you attach yourself to a campaign that isn't popular. Um, the, the point about, uh, that Martin made about um, uh, politicians speaking their minds, I mean, I actually think it's quite refreshing in a way that Cameron, as Prime Minister, is a bit loose-tongued. He's a bit undiplomatic. You can say, well, that's good. We like politicians to say what they think. And yet, he will also then get criticised for being a little bit undiplomatic. I mean, there are times, as a politician, I'm sure Douglas would agree, you just can't win. Are you, Julie, is, I thought we had five minutes. Do you want me to wrap up now? Wrap up now? Five minutes? OK, very good. Uh, whenever Julia's hand twitches, so... I saw... Lucy, did you want to ask a question? No? Yes, OK, go on. We'll have them down at the front. I'm going to take only two more, and then I'll give people 30 seconds to come back, and then we will finish on time. So, um, Speak up. 
Off politics and on to, uh, back to the to communities on the ground, one problem at the moment is that the housing has been given, the social housing has been given over to housing associations. They're very unaccountable. They can't be uh, checked um, through the freedom of information and they actually um, tend to squash if they want to do something, they tend to squash the communities who are there in estates currently. And th therefore you have communities who are sort of threatened by the fact that the um, so uh, social job has been given to essentially private, unaccountable com companies. And this is really a problem. Okay, so politics squashing communities. I, I'll go to Neil, and I might just take one, one more brief point, and then I'll ask the panel to have a final reflection, Br briefly. Just, just to expand on that point, um, we've had housing taken out of local politics. The past 30 years, both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have tried to promise business that local politics wouldn't be allowed to interfere. They've tried <coughs> to promise the middle classes that it wouldn't interfere with the schooling of their kids, etc., They've hollowed out local politics. It's not surprising that it doesn't uh, produce people and that those classes in society are not engaged in the way that they were when Birmingham and Manchester and uh, huge cities and big political decisions were taken. Um, about 20 years ago, some of us devised a primary system uh, for the Labour Party, which was buried in a box nailed down by Trade Union General Secretaries and Stuart Bell, would you favour the introduction of a primary system to test politicians or to test candidates locally before they step up to uh, okay. and not just the internal party machine? But I'm going to stop it there because otherwise Julia is going to frown at me. So let's, so let's have a kind of yes or no answer on do we think primaries are a good idea and then a final thought about whether we can be optimistic about the future of politics and community. And we'll just go down the panel and then we will wrap up. So Peter... Primaries, yes. One of the most interesting stories of this present parliament is, if I've got the name right, Sarah Wollaston, is it? The Conservative member for Totnes, who was chosen a doctor in open primary, and she's now in revolt against the health reforms, speaking from a position that is hard to gain, say, the whips hate her. Now, I think if there were 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 MPs like that who'd emerged uh, from the real world through an open primary system, parliament would become a lot more in interesting. As for the local, um, the localism point, I'm not an expert on social housing, but let me just say this, about, uh, when Neil talks about you know, the great municipalities of the past, the, if you say make it local, then you get what the media call the postcode lottery. And if you take in the case of the health service, which we and others have polled, if you say to people, do you want decisions taken locally with the possibility that services will vary across the country, or decisions taken nationally and the same standards everywhere, Always, by huge majorities, people want standard national conditions. Now, people may be wrong, but that's what politicians will be fighting against if they go down a truly local route, which would mean a variety and would mean postcode lottery stories. Very good. Ollie, primaries and a final thought? Uh, primaries, um, why not? <laughs> Let's just, uh, why not? I think, you know, <laughs> try anything. Because at the moment, if you, if you have such a low percentage share of turnout, I mean, my hope is that AV will make some difference, but I agree, um, you know, kind of about the scepticism, will it make sufficient difference? Uh, I've already said, you know, a couple of things that I make, think make a bigger difference. Uh, as a former trustee of a housing association, I'm struggling to recognise what you've described because I felt that we were very publicly accountable, uh, but it was some time ago that I stopped doing that, so I just need to understand a bit more about what you're describing um, because um, I thought we were um, quite accountable um, and, um, and if anything the biggest struggle in the housing association that I was a member of which was an uh, organisation which was um, desperate, desperate to increase participation and openness was just trying to find ways of get, getting tenants involved was always you know, the kind of absolute struggle um, and then um, um, I think that's a, that Very do good. Me. that's a final thought Douglas? Primaries and a final Quickly one. on primaries, I would say um, I'm open to anything that can help build that bridge back between the public and political parties. My specific concern on primaries has always been this. How do we continue to preference party members to any extent, given that one of the aspects of this conversation we haven't covered is the collapse of party membership? And what is the legitimacy of a political party of about 200,000 people 
being the people, in the case of the Labour Party, who dictate what all the candidates are going to be right across the country. And I think that's a, a different but vital related conversation. Very quickly on housing, it loops back to the conversation that we had earlier about whether we should support the alternative vote. I've run two general elections for the Labour Party nationally. The truth is we, like every other major party, concentrated our resources on about 100 to 150,000 voters in the entire country. Because those are the voters in the swing seats that decide whether you get a majority at Westminster or whether you don't. If you look at the social demographic breakdown of those 100 to 150,000 voters, they tend not to be disproportionately people with needs for social housing. And I think that helps explain why under both Labour and the Conservatives, <coughs> there hasn't been anything like the emphasis there should have been on housing for the last 20 to 30 years. And I think if we had a more representative voting system, it would actually broaden the range of issues like social housing that would become a dominant part of our public discourse. Very good. Ian, you have an enormous amount of power here because you have the final word. So um, sum it all up for us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Just very briefly on what Lucy and Neil were saying, I mean, essentially what you're talking about is localism, which is something that all three political parties say they're in favour of. And yet, when they come up against the civil service machine, which wants to concentrate power in, in uh, Westminster, in Whitehall, um, it's actually quite difficult to, to break. Um, I think there are people in the government, Greg Clark, Eric Pickles, Cameron, the three of them, who actually have got this uh, like religion. But can they break through the civil service system to make it happen? I think the jury is out on that. Um, on primaries, um, I think I'm probably the only person in the room that's actually been through one. So I have a fairly jaundiced view of, of them. <laughs> um, I mean, if I, I mean, it sort of goes back to what I was saying before. The, one, the, the main one that I did was in Bracknell where Andrew Mackay being the MP, expenses, scandal and all the rest of it. The final three people were Rory Stewart, myself and Philip Lee, a local doctor. Guess which one came through the middle? Now he's a great guy, nothing against Philip Lee, make that quite clear. But that will happen time and time again and, and primaries mitigate in favour of local candidates. Now that may not be a bad thing, but not, I mean Sarah Wollaston is, an, is another good case in point there. Um, now, if we want to go to a system where you can only represent the area that you actually live in, fair enough. But if you're going to have an all, and what do you mean by a primary, an all postal ballot primary, or one where anybody can turn up to a meeting, which was the kind that I had? I mean, they are two very, very different beasts. Um, so I think you have to accept that no selection system is perfect. I think primary systems are probably better than just party members okay. voting, but um, nothing's perfect. Very good. Okay, well, one thing that isn't perfect, we're three minutes over time, but we'll get you to the, the, the pre-dinner and drinks just about there. I'd like you to thank our panellists. I think it was a very thoughtful discussion. So. <laughs> we have some housekeeping.